Welcome back to Fresh from the Old Bailey for a delayed week two special edition podcast on the Constance Martin trial. With me this week are Guy Toyne, the co-owner of Court News. Hi. Jack Hudson, the star reporter of Court News. Hello. And Alice Snape, a freelance journalist who writes for Cosmo and Women's Health. Hello. Alice, why are you covering this case? I was interested in this particular case because when I... I've, I, I freelance at Cosmopolitan a lot and um, whenever we do any content about Constance Martin and Mark Gordon and their relationship it's always wildly popular and I ended up down lots of different rabbit holes while the couple were on the run um, and I've also over the past year got more interested in the legal system um, I did jury duty last year and I also covered uh, a libel case at the High Court um, because I've written a lot about um, sexual assault in the tattoo world and I'm just very interested to see it, especially with stories that I know lots about, how how that story is told in court. Um, I'm also interested to see if I... I'm genuinely interested to see if I come to the same conclusion as the jury. I know it's not my job to decide, but with the evidence that I see in court, I'm interested to see if I end up with the same same opinion. So I haven't. I I probably come at it from a very different angle to the to the guys at Court News. So obviously they write very factual reports, whereas I'm probably looking to write something more in depth at the end and think about all the nuances and what can all the stuff that can't be said now is probably what I'm interested in there have been a lot of delays and we haven't put out an episode for a fortnight and maybe we should go into briefly why that was it had to do with an exploding substation I believe (laughs) yes so since we last spoke we've had we had two days sitting on the Monday and Tuesday after our last episode. And then on Wednesday, we all came into court. We were ready to go. And suddenly, all the lights turned off. And then we wondered what to do. And then the fire alarms went off. The building was evacuated. And yes, it turns out the electricity substation, which is around the back of the building, exploded. So there's lots of fire engines. The judge, judge from this trial was actually on the scene with the fire engines, came and gave us updates. He was very good. And uh, yes, the building was shut for three days. And then we returned last week on Monday, but the trial didn't sit for two days for administrative reasons. And we had one day sitting last week, and then we had, we've had two days this week, Monday and Tuesday. So we've had five days since we last spoke. Today, you guys have, have come back from a, a fitfully boring afternoon, I gather. Um, the first half of the afternoon was very interesting. We had a, the tent, or a tent, the same tent that Constance Martin and Mark Gordon slept in. And one of those tents bought from Argos, which was put up in court. And then the second half of this afternoon was a, a weather expert who said, give us the temperatures 
which the lowest was minus four, the highest was 11 during the period the couple were camping. So pretty normal temperatures for that time of year. But yes, it was quite bizarre to see a tent being put up in front of us in court. It was so surreal. So we... Uh, Jack and I were actually sitting on opposite sides of the court. So there's a press bench in the court, which is next to the jury. And then there's also some other seats that are closer to the entrance. And when I walked back in, the tent was set up in front of the press bench. So you you had to kind of squeeze around the side to get in. And then it just kind of sat in court for a little while while... Um, while they were talking about Mark Gordon's police interview. And then after a little break, when the jurors came back in, they were invited to touch the tent. So one of the police officers um, lifted it over to the side of the court where the judge is by by, by the jury, and they could all queue up and pile out. And they said, the the judge said that they don't have to get inside the tent um but they did so they all queued up took their turn one of them got in and looked like he was lying down then they all kind of swapped around they were looking at the tabs um and two of them two of them got in together at the same time to test that out yeah which felt quite bizarre it was quite weird seeing them get in the tent and then we had some sleeping bags passed around, which were the same sleeping bags that they bought, a adult one and a children one with unicorns on. Yeah, it had like rain, it was a green sleeping bag with little rainbows and clouds and unicorns on and the jurors passed it around and they felt it and they were looking at the the labels. So, and then one of the questions that one of the jurors asked was, um, do sleeping bags and tent have ratings for what kind of weather they can be used in? So like, for example, duvets have tog counts so that you know what kind of warmth they'll give you in winter or summer. So they asked the question whether those sleeping bags have a similar kind of, yeah, similar, similar kind of rating. Yeah. And then we have... We had the jury, I suppose, now they know that they can be given these things. They've asked to be given an identical little bag for life, identical to the one Victoria was carried in and found dead in, to examine that as well. So that may happen in the next few weeks. So I guess in terms of the, the, of the fits and starts of, of what we've heard, the sort of overall chronology, it, it starts with a kind of a, a wrap-up on eyewitness testimonies, which was a big part of the first week of the trial. And uh, there was a a woman who saw the couple on a heath. And then I gather she later went back and, and recreated the event, the, the seeing. Um, one of the witnesses that we heard, God, it must be about two weeks ago now, was a, a woman called Pauline, Um, And she was walking with her husband in Stammer Park. um, And, well, she was actually on her mobility scooter and her husband was walking ahead. And uh, she had a camera 
and she was saying that she's very observant. She likes to take in her surroundings and she had spotted the couple and she said that uh, the baby was wrapped in a sling in the front of her body. Um, and she was absolutely 100% sure this was the couple from the news because there's been so many news reports about them. Uh, she was absolutely convinced it was them. She later said to her husband, oh, I'm sure that was them. I'm sure that was them. Um, but her husband was like, hmm wasn't really looking and then her husband was actually brought in to be cross-examined too as a witness he came as a live witness um, into court as well during his uh, cross-examination it came to light that he had told the police that they went back to recreate this sighting to see if they could remember anything and they parked in the same place they walked the same route they took the same clothes and they even, um, in their own form of investigation, tried to search through the bins for any nappies or evidence that they could perhaps take to the police. Um, he also said that she, her, um, his, his wife had years ago, during the Babes in the Woods murder, had felt absolutely sure that she'd seen them and felt like she could have helped or stopped the situation somehow and this is why this time she felt compelled to go to the police because she didn't want to regret like she had in yeah during the babes in the woods murder which wow. was that is quite the synchronicity there so jack you have been uh, tracking this day in and day out and could you maybe just give us a, a, a chronology of of what's happened in terms of so I think we had their arrest and the footage of that which went around the internet we have then had their individual police interviews which again have taken sort of various bizarre turns and then we've had the the evidence of today of the, of the tent etc yes yeah, so we had the last eyewitnesses the last eyewitness was a man called Dale Cooley who was sort of the successful eyewitness because he was the one who actually got the couple arrested um, he saw them near a golf course in Brighton and he actually rang his wife first he rang his wife twice to say he was definitely sure they'd seen the couple from the news and what should he do and then eventually he flagged down a paramedic and eventually called the police. Um, so the police tended. They finally found Mark Gordon and Constance Martin. And then they were arrested. And of course, normally a, someone who's been arrested can't be asked any questions about the offence until after they've been taken to a police station and interviewed. But in this case, because a baby was missing and in danger, they were asked emergency questions on the scene. So they were repeatedly asked, where is your child? And Mark Gordon's response was to repeatedly ask to be given food because he had, they'd just been to a shop, they had a bag of food. And Mark Gordon said he was starving, they wanted to eat. He even asked for mayonnaise to go with his chicken 
And the police officer replied that he wasn't going to make him a meal. He wasn't going to make a sandwich. Yeah, we've seen some of the body-worn footage um, that was taken by the police at the scene of the shed, which was uh, where the baby was actually found. And uh, I think it's fair to say the footage itself is extremely depressing. You have two police officers trying to do their very best work, as it were, but uh, going through the various detritus that has been left behind in the shed. Obviously, part of it is the couple's belongings. Part of it is the, the general rubbish that you would see piled up in a shed on an allotment. And you see the two officers going through the bag for life. It looks like the bag for life has now been stuffed with rubbish. Um, and you can see them picking through plastic bags and old bottles and material like that. And it's, um, it is uh, a very depressing scene. The jury were also shown some of the still pictures of things that were recovered from that shed. And obviously it's heartbreaking to see the stained baby grow that uh, they kept Victoria in uh, until I think she died. So, yeah, I think some of the jurors looking at them were obviously quite upset to see uh, that sort of footage and some of the material there. They have been very interested in this case. Very, when I say very interested, I mean they've been answering lots of questions. Uh, as you heard, they spent some time uh, crawling in and out of the tent and uh, checking the thickness of the material. And this is a key to the prosecution case because the question is, is there an inherent risk to a child of that age by keeping them on the South Downs in a tent of that flimsy material. Really, when you see the blue tent, it's one of these small blue dome tents. It's the sort of tent that people use to go to Glastonbury for the weekend. Uh, not perhaps the sort of tent you would expect to see uh, in the middle of winter. But of course, the case of the two parents is that they did everything they possibly could to try and keep the child safe and well. And they were so unhappy that the way the authorities had taken their other children away, that they thought this was the only alternative. And they were doing, in their, on their case anyway, their very best to look after the child. And of course, it's a matter for the jury to decide whether they were criminally negligent in the way that they looked after the child and whether that was directly responsible uh, or partly responsible uh, for the death of Victoria. The state has to prove negligence, but incompetence doesn't matter. An incompetent parent does not necessarily cause the death of a child. What I mean is it has to be willful neglect. They must have known to prove the case that the prosecution have brought against them 
the allegation is that they must have known that the child was at huge risk to be kept in a tent in those cold conditions in January. Their case is that they were trying to keep the child as warm as they possibly could. And they will point to some of the video where you see that both of them are obviously making uh, attempts to keep the child warm. Uh, that's why uh, the mother has the child in the coat. The question is, is how much risk was actually involved in keeping the child in those circumstances in that tent? And of course, this is a matter for the jury to decide. Do they think that every means they could take, the parents could take, to keep the child safe and well was employed? Or were they just absolutely reckless? Was it the case that they were so paranoid about the authorities that they effectively were blinded to the needs of a tiny baby? Because they claim a fear of the authorities, and I guess they're, they're trying to claim that that fear is, is legitimate. Have we heard anything more from them about why they have this fear? Well, yeah, lots has come, well, not lots, uh, snippets have come out in uh, the police interviews for both Constance Martin and Mark Gordon. Um, Constance has said that um, she's obviously had four children taken off her and she has also said that um, her own family had um, employed private investigators to follow them um and she said that the incident incident um that sparked the children being removed from her was that she had fallen out of a window and the social services had blamed that on mark gordon um but she argued to the police that there was no evidence of domestic violence um, is there any more detail on how she fell out of a window? No, she um, told the police that that's why the children were taken away by social services. And um, she said it was an accident. And she said that they blamed it on Mark with no evidence. I think what has come across in both of the police interviews so far is that the explosion of the car is what changed the course of their story. So they both blame that for what, what occurred after. So um, Constance said that she had absolutely everything in that car to allow for a good life for her and the baby. There was clothes, there was nappies. She had all the elements that would make a good life. But the fact that the car blew up meant that everything was gone and including like thousands of pounds worth of cash and it was at that moment that everything changed for her because she was like the police are going to come and they are going to remove this baby from me and that's when um lots of press attention started as well and she says that is why they were forced to to run so they 
that's the reason she says that they got all the taxis. And it was the reason they then had to buy a tent instead of staying in a hotel um, because they wanted to lay low and remove themselves from the public eye. She actually, at a point during her police um, interview, described that as a really like happy period of her life, being together, her, Mark and the baby. That it sounds like that's what she wanted. And Mark said that he did wish that he did stop after the car exploded, that he did wait for the police and that he regretted running off and that, yeah, that the press attention became too much and that's what kind of forced them out into a tent because they couldn't get a flat, they couldn't get a hotel. Mark Gordon appears to have spent quite a lot of his police interview on the floor. Um... He spent some of the initial interview on the floor. Um, he said he had pain. He had seen a nurse, I believe. He'd asked to see a doctor. He was taken into the interview in a wheelchair and then he decided to get on the floor and the officer seemed to feel that he was answering the questions better on the floor, so they proceeded like that for a while. But then Mark didn't answer many questions. And then he was re-interviewed the next day when he told the officer that he wasn't going to answer his questions. He um, did display a great deal of knowledge about the British legal system, actually. He said he was talking about the Police Proceeds and Crime Act. He was um, telling the police officer that he didn't want to give him his testimony, that his testimony was for the jury, that he felt it would be better to wait to get to court and to give his first-hand account. So he seems... He said he loved juries. He said he trusted that when he got to court, he would be released, that the ordinary people would hear what happened and that he would be released. Yeah, he said that he didn't think they would just think things were black and white and that he, coming at it with their own life experience, they're just trying to live their life like he is. He he thinks that they will be able to see the story for how it is. And he, obviously, I think it goes with the theme of the, their characters. They have a distrust for the authorities. Um, so I think that really came across in the in the police interview. He doesn't trust the police. He believed that things that he would get, the way that, it, that he answered a question, that, that that bit of information would get taken out of context and twisted, which is why he... Is said he will only say his story when he's in court in front of a jury, which is quite weird to hear when you're there in court with the jury. And I did sneak a look over to think if the gravity of the situation and maybe hitting them now that they are the jury that Mark Gordon was referring to a year ago. Mm. So that was his initial approach to not answer the questions. And then he was told by police that Constance Martin had spoken to them. She had told them that she thinks she fell asleep on top of the baby. She had told them that she went to sleep and the baby, and they woke up and the baby was dead. And at that point, he asked for a chat with his solicitor. And then they came back into the interview and he started to talk. He said that what she had said was right. They said that he admitted that he had planned to not say anything to protect her. 
he said he did it all because he loved her and that she was he believed she was suffering from post-traumatic distress he said that she was a mother who loved her child that he wanted to support her and that that's why they ended up on the run they wanted to stay with the child yeah, it was quite interesting some, seeing them together in court today while all of this was unfolding because I don't know if this is standard, but a dock officer wasn't in between them today. And usually in court, there's always an officer in between the defendants so they can't necessarily touch each other. But today, during the evidence, while his police interview was being read out, he was comforting her and like rubbing her arm and and there was a lot of physical connection between them today in front of the jury, which hasn't really happened before, which I thought was interesting. They both talked a lot in their police interviews about how much they loved each other. He said mm-hmm. she was an awesome woman, an amazing lady. Um, and we have heard a bit more about their relationship. So what we've kind of been missing so far is how they actually met. But Constance said they met in a shop in London in 2016. They went for coffee. She said they hit it off straight away, that they're very similar, have similar perspectives on life. And she said they actually got married in a ceremony in Peru a couple of years after they met. But she said that's not legally recognised in the UK. But they, she does wear a wedding ring. And she did... Some witnesses have reported that she called Mark her husband. Um, so they did have a wedding and she does describe him as her soulmate is what she said so and she also calls him daddy bear yeah which is what we heard in the body one footage yeah multiple times she called him daddy bear when he was being held down on the floor she um shouted daddy bear a few times and i love you um so yeah Mm. The daddy bear is quite a lot to take in, um, in the context of being arrested. Yes, I mean, they certainly have no filter. How do they seem otherwise? I mean, I know that she, you know, was looking perhaps a bit worse for wear in in the early part of the trial. Is that still the case? I think she's quite. She's got quite an expressive face. I think she reacts to the stuff that is being said. So she's cried um, and she's visibly cried like tears have streamed down her face and she's been dabbing her eyes with tissues. Um, Notably during her police interview when that was played to the jury. Um, She also clearly questions things that are being said. Like she'll pull questioning faces or she'll look at Mark and be like, "Mm, really? Um, And particularly when there are there have also been descriptions of how she looks in her body she'll pull a bit of a face like oh god it's quite strange someone talking about my body in public um but she seems she seems like she's going through a lot of emotions in the dock and she's visibly showing those emotions whereas in contrast i think mark he's his face doesn't really change very much. The only time I've seen him nod in response to anything was um, today in court um, during his police interview when he was talking about the jury and the justice system. 
he was nodding along. It's clear from and something that we said in the earlier podcast that they are defending this case as a couple. The jury can see they are still very affectionate. I suppose one might say they're still very much in, in love and they're determined to beat this charge together. Um, it will be a matter for the jury to decide, of course, but it's a, if you like, joint defence where they will support each other and I would imagine whatever the outcome of this case, uh, they will continue to support each other after it. <laughs>